Hey Sam. What? Are you busy tomorrow? Uh, in the afternoon, but I'm not after that. Oh well, there's a film club event. You should come. What? I'm. I mean, I have to know what the what the picture is gonna be. Yeah, yeah. So it's Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Dude, I watched that last year, and I was so mad. I sat down and watched it, and <laughs> I I couldn't sit through it. There was not a Little Women in it. There was a lot of women in it. Welcome to another episode of Jackson Film Club, the podcast. We are here with uh, your co-host, Sam Grafe. Sam Grafe and my uh, my co-host, who are you? I'll introduce myself. I'm Michael Lamb. Yeah. And uh, today, what we're going to do is we're going to break down Sam's top favorite 20 movies. That was a weird order to say those words in, but I think it got the point across. Top 20 favorite movies? Yeah, that's a much better way to say it. Yeah, I guess the number does come before the adjective. Yeah, so we've been uh, rocking through a few of these. We did um, Michael's, and then we did well. We we did Jake Sullivan, special guest Jake Sullivan. Yeah, Jake was the pilot. He, yeah, we did it. We tested it out on him because he's kind of expendable, and then we were throwing it to Michael. He did the next one. Uh, so I guess we should. We're just trying to get the hosts out of the way so that for future episodes you kind of know the groundwork of what our taste in film is. Um, yeah, I'm scared. We, we don't. We don't want you to just listen to anybody. It's like, well, hopefully we've got pretty good taste in movies. We've got you know nice, thoughtful selection, artful but accessible. I'm scared, Michael. Why? I'm scared that people are gonna. Uh, make fun of me and call me a, a normie for a lot of my movie choices. Great. You know what What you need, Sam, is more people telling you that your opinion is wrong. Okay. Uh, I think that everybody needs that in their life. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm out. Some of these are not... I don't know. I'm sticking with it. I was very conflicted about... I have a lot of things to explain. So one of the things I'll just go ahead and say, there were a lot of movies that I had on my favorites list. It was probably like a top 30 list. Um, that I decided to take off of here because I'd only seen them once. Um, and I just kind of, because a lot of times I'll watch a movie and love it, and then I'll watch it again and like not like it as much. And so I, I wanted to be able to only have films on here that I've been able to completely judge because I've seen them more than once. Um, so some of those movies that were on here were um, Goodfellas, Grand Budapest Hotel, um, Insandi, which is actually my favorite Denis Villeneuve movie. Um, which I have another one of my second favorite of his on here. I just replaced it. Um, I replaced Insandi with it because I've only seen Insandi once. But um, those movies would be on this list, but because I've only seen them once, I decided to um, give some other movies a shot just in case I didn't have a fully formed opinion on them. Okay. Well, so I'm looking at your list right now, and it indicates here that this is an unranked list, but Correct. you've got a top two. What are the top yeah, two? Yeah, so the top two are, I wouldn't say interchangeable, but um, if someone is to ask me, Sam, what's your favorite movie? I always have two answers. I say, if you're asking me to pick one singular movie that is my favorite movie, um, it's The Social Network. And then if you're asking me what's your favorite movie and I can answer however I want, I'm saying The Lord of the Rings trilogy as one movie. On the list, I just have Fellowship of the Ring because it's the first movie in the trilogy. Um, depending on when I watch the movies in my life, uh, what mood I'm in, a different one will be my favorite. For most of my life, I said Return of the King was my favorite, and then 
Um, I hadn't seen the movies in a few years, watched them probably in high school or late middle school, and Fellowship became my favorite. And then in the last few years, whenever I watched Two Towers, I'm like, wow, this one is way better than I remember it being. Um, But all three of them are collectively my favorite of all time. They're the movies that got me into film and filmmaking. Um, I genuinely think my life would look completely different without these movies. Hmm. Um, But if that answer doesn't count and I have to pick one movie, The Social Network, I think The Social Network is um, technically flawless, one of the most flawless movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, And I think if you take, take it movie by movie, I think The Social Network technically is better than any Lord of the Rings movie, but Lord of the Rings will always have the number one spot in my heart just because I think as a whole, it's, it's unbelievable. I think that those are both very solid picks. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because there's a number of top 20 lists that I've collected and you're the first person to just list one of the Lord of the Rings movies and say, I mean all three. Everybody else has just said, I'm going to list all three and your ranked list be damned. They're all one movie in my mind. Yeah, I just I wanted to give space to other movies because if I had three Lord of the Rings movies, then that's two spots that could be taken by other things and I could just kind of cheat on the whole thing and say, I mean three movies. But I'll run down my other ones since they're, these are not in order. Um, so I'll just run down the ones that I have on the list. So after those two, I have um, The Place Beyond the Pines, then I have No Country for Old Men, Zodiac, 12 Angry Men, Inception, Tenet, La La Land, The Prestige, The Truman Show, Back to the Future, National Treasure, The Princess Bride, Marriage Story, It's a Wonderful Life, Stylog 17, Ocean's Eleven, Prisoners, and The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, so for some of these, again, I, I had other movies on here that were not, um, originally in this list, but I took them off because I'd only seen them once. And I really just tried to go through movies and be like, what are some movies that had not been on my favorites list, but have recently become some of my favorites of the last few years. So that's kind of where Ocean's 11 comes in. Ocean's 11 is one that I think I saw for the first time last year. Um, and then watched it again recently. And so it's just really fresh on my mind and I love it. And I think it's going to get better every time I watch it. Um, and marriage story is kind of the same way. I've only seen it twice, but it, it, um, actually made me emotional, which it's very rare for a movie to do that. And I really love the realism of it. It feels very real. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some of those on there and then there's some, that I've grown up with, like Lord of the Rings and Princess Bride and National Treasure. National Treasure is a complete nostalgia thing. I don't think it's one of the greatest movies ever made, but it's one of the most fun movies I've ever seen. Is uh, that one that you can rewatch anytime? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And I, But I don't, though. That's the thing. Is like I don't rewatch it all the time, but whenever I do see it again or if so, it's on at someone's house, I'm like, I love this movie. I forgot how much I love this movie. Um that one, yeah, that one's that one's a lot of fun to me. So looking at your list, I see, um, I mean, I, just picking five movies, there's between those five movies, two directors. 
Uh, you've got three movies from Christopher Nolan and then yeah. two movies from David Fincher. Yeah. So are you a bit of a fanboy? Yes. Yes. So we were just talking before the podcast started uh, that I was trying to decide is having three Christopher Nolan movies on my list too much. And I almost... Jake Sullivan, our uh, last guest who did his top 20, kind of did a kind of a cheat where he just had one movie for his favorite directors um, and because it was kind of a rolling pen. I picked my three favorites that are kind of a rolling pen. So Tenet is kind of a out-of-the-box choice because it came out last year. But um, I, uh, especially watching it, this I saw it um, three times in theaters um, and then twice pretty soon after that, once it came uh, to Blu-ray, and then recently watched it again for the first time in a while. And I just have no shame in, in saying it's one of my favorites anymore. There was a while where I was like, ah, it's kind of tacky to say that Tenet's one of your favorite movies of all time, but it's one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. Watched it in IMAX with some dudes that were super excited about it, and it, it, it's the only um, movie-going experience that I would compare to being on a roller coaster. I was just... I had high expectations, and then it continued to blow my mind the more I watched the movie. Um, yeah, I've never had what I would consider that much of a mind-blowing experience. Like That's the definition of just having my mind blown in terms of like how how did they shoot this? Uh, how did he write this? Uh, how am I seeing this? How has this never been done before? Just the idea mm-hmm. of seeing one thing going forward and the other thing going backward in the same frame, just unbelievable. Fighting someone who is moving backwards through time while you're moving forwards through time or a car chase that is happening in reverse at the same time. Um, It might be a little light on uh, character and story, but I think it's purely an action showcase and spectacle uh, with with some good uh, character in it. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying there. Uh, So like all of the technical aspects is a lot of fun. But I do I do think even from a narrative standpoint, like it's interesting. Yeah. At the very least, it is interesting what Christopher Nolan does in Tenet. Because um, you've got this weird conceit, which is that there's the capability for things to go back in time using reverse entropy, I think is what the movie calls it. Yeah. Um, and how all of that kind of fits together and how he gives all of that information to the audience um, through the narrative. It's all exposition, but if you've ever seen a Christopher Nolan movie, you kind of know, yeah. like, okay, well, he's going to exposit to me a lot. Um, so, Which, to be fair, I don't know how you do a movie like this and you don't. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I mean, it, it's fair that it gets... I heard someone say the he makes the um, super complicated time travel and inversion stuff very easy to explain, but simple things like character dynamics, he makes so insanely complicated, like the son of a wealthy businessman transferred to Iraq in 2005, and he was in cahoots with this man. It's like, who is who? Like you're trying The first time watching Tenet is just sensory overload of not only the action, but... Yeah, trying to figure out how do people, how does this person know this person? Why are they in danger? How does this person have blackmail over this person? Like it's extremely confusing. I won't deny that. But 
um, um, by my second or third watch, I was starting to get a, like I, I had a, I would say a really solid grasp on it. Um, and so I, I don't think it's as hard to comprehend as people say it is. I think if you can watch it a first time, watch it a second time, maybe with subtitles, uh, well, it's all I a think pincer it'll be fine. Yeah. It's a, it's a temporal pincer. Uh, so I mean, I've described Tenet as the most incomprehensibly Christopher Nolan movie ever made. Yeah. Uh, but I do see that, um, that you've got Inception right next to it. Yeah. Now, since none of these are are listed on here as ranked, I am curious. Um, could you give a ranking to these just these three Nolan movies? You've got Inception. So, and the prestige. Yeah. So on my Nolan ranked list on Letterbox, I think right now what I have is the prestige, Inception, and Tenet. Um, right now, if I I haven't seen, I need to rewatch the prestige. It's been way too long since I watched it. It's I'd say, well, I was gonna say it's his most underrated, but in the last few years, it's really gained a lot of a lot of their like respect and attention it deserves. Prestige is fantastic. I'd say his most underrated is Insomnia, which literally nobody has seen Insomnia, but it's just a really great crime thriller. Who's that? Was that Halle Berry? No, it's Al Pacino and Hilary Swank oh. and uh, Robin Williams. I don't know what I'm thinking of. Yeah, but um, yeah, The Prestige right now, I mean, I don't know. Tenet, Tenet's fresh in my mind, so it, it's just a constant rolling pin of which one's my favorite. Yeah. Um, I- I think that I, I would agree. The Prestige is is a top Nolan movie for me. It's, it just it, works. It is the best story that he yeah, has told for sure. Uh, I love Inception. I think we've mentioned we've had conversations on and offline, but the uh, it's like one of the the it was a formative movie for me because it was one of the first movies that I saw in theaters by myself, mm-hmm. and it's one of the first times that I'd ever seen a Nolan movie and. Remember just being really blown away. It was like uh, I left that experience knowing that I didn't have it all figured out, and I was okay with that. And I knew that I wanted to watch it again. Yeah. And uh, for me, like when a director can tell a story in such a way that makes me want to go back and just consume <laughs> that that uh, that content again. Um, there's something there. It's like they're 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 digging at something. Yeah, and I I think that goes back to the prestige. There's just, it, I mean, I'm not saying anything new, but the movie is literally the magic trick that it's telling you about with mm. the the pledge, the turn, and the prestige. The entire movie is literally a magic trick, and they're telling you exactly what the answer is, and you're like, no, but like, what's the actual magic trick? And then when the reveal happens, you're like. Oh, it is the entire movie is the magic trick that they're telling you it is. Uh, yeah, I I love that movie. Um, Back to the Future is a more recent one for me. That's one that I didn't grow up watching. Um, and classics are a hard thing because like sometimes you watch a classic and it's extreme. It's an extreme letdown. And sometimes you'll watch it and you'll be like, oh, I really I get what all the hype's about. For me, Back to the Future is one of those that I was like, oh, I get it. Uh, I watched it during quarantine uh, last year and instantly was like, okay, this is going to be one of my favorites. 
it's just there it's so much fun and it's that's another movie that is I, I think is really close to perfect. It's just the perfect like just fun movie. Like there's no I don't know, it just makes you feel good. I yeah. love Back to the Future. So I haven't seen Back to the Future in a long time. I think the last time I saw it was in high school, maybe maybe early college years. Uh, but there was a show that I watched in college, and they made a lot of Back to the Future references. It was called Mr. Robot. Hmm. Have I talked about them on the podcast yet? About Mr. Robot? Yeah. Uh, I think you might have referenced it once. Maybe. Uh the showrunner, Sam Esmail, he does, uh, especially in, in like seasons three and four, he makes so many references to like his favorite movies and TV shows. And there's like a, a whole narrative plot <laughs> that kind of plays into Back to the Future. Uh, it's, it's like a father-son relationship where going to the movies was a thing for them. And... Uh, at one point, uh, the so the, the story is set in, oh gosh, 2015, I think. And in the first movie, it's like the, the year that they, they go to, that's the year that they, they travel to the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like October something. You're talking about Back to the Future? 2015, yeah. And yeah, so, that's in the second one. So in, in Mr. Robot, like the there's an episode where uh, they go to the theater to watch that movie on that day, uh-huh. and it's a like a pivotal moment. And uh, I just love that 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 he loves Back to the Future so much that he couldn't help but include it so much in his show. So I'm not surprised that that one is is such an enduring classic. That yeah. even as a, a a young lad yourself, you you have made it one of your top favorites. It's really good. Um. I could have gone with more David Fincher on here. I could have probably thrown seven on here. Um, but oh, but I chose, why would you do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, why would I do that? But I chose um, Zodiac as my other David Fincher. It's Because it's a more palatable one? You can actually eat your dinner with that one? <laughs> yeah. I have eaten tacos while watching uh, Zodiac before. Um, Zodiac, I think, is the best crime thriller ever made. I love Zodiac. It's especially the best true crime thriller in terms of like the actual factual details of what happened, Fincher replicated it to a T from what I understand down to like exactly what the victims were wearing. But it's... You know they caught the Zodiac Killer, right? Well, they've caught the Zodiac Killer every five years for the last 50 years. So it'll be someone new in five years. We'll see. Maybe it'll be you. It's Arthur Lee Allen. Uh, have you seen Zodiac? No. What? So I've only seen eighty percent of. Okay, which ones have you not seen? I I say only. Eighty percent is actually uh, uncommon. Normally, I've only seen like half. Let me guess which ones you haven't seen because I think I know exactly which ones they are. You have not seen Zodiac. You have not seen Stalag Seventeen, and you have not seen. um, What's What's eighty percent of twenty? So sixteen. You you have two more movies to list. Okay, so Zodiac, Stalag Seventeen, Count of Monte Cristo. Correct. And. Uh, Ocean's Eleven. Wow, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I just figured. I was like, I'm pretty sure he hasn't seen Ocean's Eleven. 
Uh, no one has seen Starlog 17 except for me and my family. Uh, and, so that's a that's a, a great family pick. Something like that. I don't remember when that started because I I wasn't watching it when I was like three and four, but like at some point in my childhood, I guess the DVD just appeared in my house and <laughs> we started watching it. And it's I'm probably gonna watch it pretty soon because it kind of takes place around Christmas. So it's basically a group of um, American prisoners of war in a uh, German prisoner of war camp called Stalag 17. Um, but it's it's kind of one of those World War II comedies, so it's not like it's not dark and depressing. Like it has it has dark moments in it, but it's mostly a lighthearted comedy of like what these prisoners do in to keep themselves like I guess happy but also just functioning in this prison war camp. Hmm. Very cool hand Luke, but before cool hand Luke and and better than cool hand Luke. Uh, but um I love Salak 17. I, I don't really want to say much about it, I guess. If you haven't yeah. seen it, I think you should see it. Well, it's interesting. So there's only two people that I'm connected with on Letterboxd who have seen it. Really? Who uh, else has seen it? Uh, there's you, and you gave it four and a half stars. And then my buddy Fletcher, he gave it five stars. Wow. And, Good for Fletcher. Uh, that's it. It is well rated on Letterboxd. So. Yeah. I but yeah, I haven't heard anybody else um who's seen it. Billy Wilder directed it and he also did Sunset Boulevard, which I've yet to see. Um but yeah, Stylic Seventeen just has it's just fun to watch. If you're gonna watch it, watch it at Christmas, I guess. Um It's a Christmas movie. Yeah. Um it's funny. There's there's a character in it that the last time uh I watched it with my parents me and my mom were like, that's Adam Driver. There's a guy in it that has to be, it's not, but it has to be Adam Driver's like great-grandfather or something because he looks exactly like Adam Driver. And pretty much all he says is, I believe it. I believe it. Um, anyway, so if you watch Solid 17, look out for Adam Driver, which, got to give credit where credit's to that joke that you heard at the beginning of the episode was an Adam Driver joke about uh, Little Women. Yeah, the Little Women joke. Yeah. Um, there, there wasn't a little woman. There's a lot of women. There's a lot of women in it. Um, sticking with older movies, um, it's a wonderful life is on here. Another Christmas, Christmas movie. This one gets more profound and more emotional for me. The older I get. Well, do you remember? Like, have you been watching this every year since childhood? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's been a lot of Christmas movies that has been kind of. Um, circulating my house as a child, I think we would always watch um, on on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving would happen and we'd eat. Thanksgiving night, we would watch Miracle on 34th Street because it starts on the Macy's Day Parade and then goes through. It's a Christmas movie. So it's kind of the turning point from Thanksgiving to Christmas. So that was the first Christmas movie we'd watch. As I've gotten older, the less I've liked that movie. I do not like that movie anymore. Uh, we'd watch White Christmas, which I still think is good, but it's I've kind of lost interest in it over the years. Elf, as much as I would like to love it, it gets worse each year. Uh, but It's a Wonderful Life gets so much better every single year. And um, again, like I said, I don't get emotional in movies, but the last time I saw It's a Wonderful Life, I was like, 
sucking back the tears. Um, wow. That's, yeah. That is an image. Yeah. Yeah, just picture eyes slowly going back into the skull. That's what it looked like. <laughs> so that's It's Wonderful Life is very good. And I let me let me just look here. Yeah, you gave it uh, three and a half stars. So I'm going to need you to rewatch It's Wonderful Life. Uh, well, okay. The Place Beyond the Pines. We recently watched this together because I said, how have you seen and loved Sound of Metal, but you haven't seen The Place Beyond the Pines? So the Place Beyond the Pines was written and directed by Derek C. in France, who also um, was a co-writer on Sound of Metal, both of the movies. I've, I just think it's very interesting. Um, both of the lead characters in both of those movies are heavily tattooed and have bleached hair. has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but the fact that Derek C. in France wrote two protagonists with tattoos and bleached hair, I just find interesting. Place Beyond the Pines, I think, is extremely underrated. It's very divisive. I think it the way it seems from reading re- letterbox reviews is either people were really disappointed in it, like they were really on board for the first little bit, and then by the last two acts of the movie, they were completely checked out, or people love it, and I'm in the camp that loves it. I think it feels like a epic, even though it's not, it's just like a drama. It's a drama movie, so it's not... Um, sprawling, like covering multiple states or countries, or it's it's not an action movie, but it feels epic. And the fact that it's like an epic family, if you're following, I don't want to get too much into it because I think that's part of. I think the one of the greatest parts about this movie is not knowing anything about it. Oh my gosh, that was a terrible voice crack, <laughs> <clears throat> man. Growing up, boy. it's uh, making me choke up. <laughs> growing up, that was terrible, but. Um, it's another one that I discovered in um, quarantine. Yeah, I, and uh, I love this one as well. And yeah, I, 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 I'm here, glad that you love it. Okay, good. So, was that a question for you? Dang. Um, the so the way that I use Letterboxd, uh, just for your information and for anybody else's, uh, I'll I use the like button. If I don't like a movie, then I won't use the like button. Oh, really? Yeah. So. Uh, I, I use a like button every time I like a movie. The, but I, I hear what you're saying with the place beyond the pines. This is very like generational story. Yeah, because uh, it, it it feels biblical in that regard. So mm-hmm. I think that epic is is a perfectly fine word to use because you've got um, this rivalry between two fathers. You, know, you got a lawmaker and then uh, a lawbreaker, and then. Um, you end up seeing their sons and how how they have they continue the rivalry unbeknownst and completely like it separate. Just, it's just history repeats itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. It does. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Um, yeah. Place Beyond the Pines, I think, is is just super underrated. I wish more people would see it. Uh, there's a ter- there's certainly a point. I can't remember if I prepped you for it or not. I, maybe I, I hope I didn't because I I do think well, it's so best to go into this. Before movie you say that, Sam, Sam did just react when I mentioned that there were sons in this story because yeah, I guess that that might be a spoiler. I consider that a spoiler, but that's all right. Um, but there is a turning point in this movie. It takes the three act structure very literally, um, and there's a point about right. At, the movie is maybe two hours and twenty minutes. So yeah, it's exactly two hours and twenty minutes. So. 
split into about 50-minute chunks. And right at the 50-minute mark, just about, there is a decision that the filmmaker makes that you kind of either are going to pull back at and check out of the movie or you're just going to roll with it. And um, the first time I was watching it, I definitely, my knee-jerk reaction was to be like, oh, no, I don't like that. Like, this is not what I was hoping was going to happen. Um, but uh, thankfully, I was like, I'm just going to see what happens because there's a lot of this movie left. So I just rolled with it. And I think it's very rewarding if you do just roll with it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so it's an interesting story because uh, in, in that regard, um, the story is told linearly. Like there's no flashbacks or anything. Yeah. And so once once I realized that the story was going to be told that way, uh, reaching that that inflection point didn't it only made me more excited for the rest of the movie is like well I, I know that the the future is the only thing in front of me like we're not worried about going back and like you know revisiting, revisiting yeah. all of the this this character and, and his history it's like whatever happened happened yeah what's well, uh, another thing that's really cool and Derek Stephen France did this also in um, Blue Valentine um, there's this way that he uses both mainly visual echoes um, to call mm-hmm. back to and and link either characters or moments um, so that they're not telling you, hey, this happened 10 years ago. Like they're not, the characters aren't sitting around being like, this is just like what happened 10 years ago. But because of where a scene is taking place or what a character is doing thematically or literally it echoes and it's just really great. Um, it conveys so much, and it mm. can make you feel um, the presence of a character, even if they're not on screen. So, like, even if a character hasn't been in the movie for thirty minutes, because of this visual echo, you feel like, oh, yeah, that's that's calling back to that, and you feel their presence still. Yeah. It's really great. It's it's just like walking into a room. Uh, for the first time after someone's passed away and like finding something that, that they had just done that, that last morning that they were there. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it's like, like. Wow. That presence is right here. That's there. This movie, I described it in my last letterbox review of it kind of, but there's something that Derek Stephen France can do it. I don't know why, but specifically with place beyond the pines, it has an atmosphere that I've never seen before in a movie that feels so real and like tangible. Like I feel like I know exactly what like the temperature is and then I don't know what how he did it, but I think the way I described it was something like sitting out on the front porch in a, like a July evening at like 7 p.m. and there's cicadas going by and it's really humid outside. And it's like there's something about the atmosphere of the movie that I can just, I, I feel like I'm there and I feel like I know exactly what this whole situation feels like that I've never seen before. And it's, I love it. It's it's like dreary and like nostalgic kind of, but it's not, I don't know, it's not sad, but it's just very strange. But I'm a big fan of it. Well, so we've already talked about No Country for Old Men and The Truman Show at length. Yeah. Uh, those were uh, 
covered in my top 20, um, which if you haven't heard is, is now available everywhere that you get this podcast. Yeah. It's probably like, it's definitely the top three, top 20 lists we've done so far. I would go as far as putting it at number three uh, of all the top 20s we've done so far. It's it's pretty good. Um, you would put my top 20 lists as number three? Yeah, so I'd put like lists. mine and Jake's above it somewhere. I don't know what order mine and Jake, like if me or Jake, if our lists are, if his is better than mine or mine's better than his, but I would put ours above yours, but yours is definitely top three. It's definitely oh, the third one up there. That's really, really kind of you. Um, <laughs> Count of Monte Cristo. So you haven't seen Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah, so that's uh, that's <clears throat> one of the four that I haven't seen. So Count of Monte Cristo is, um, that is one that I grew up with. Uh, can I tell you that? I, I've seen parts of it on cable television, but... I'm, it seems like a very... I've, had the, I've never had cable before, but it seems like a very cable TV movie. That's not to like... We discount it, but like we didn't have proper cable television. We had satellite television, but I called it cable because how fun is it to tell people that you had satellite? That uh, is really fun. I spent most of my free time telling people that just because how fun it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I remember seeing bits and pieces of it. It seems like maybe there's some interesting cinematography there, but uh, not really, I, honestly. I I did have to read something about Monte Cristo in high school, and so I just wasn't really that interested. Yeah. It's interesting because you mentioned cinematography. The the cinematography, if if Count of Monte Cristo was to be done again, I feel like the cinematography would be, would be great. But this movie was made in um, 2002, the year of uh, me, the year I was born. Uh, and it has very like history channel lighting where like the um, moonlight is just clearly like a very blue light that was placed outside the window so like the entire wall is a shade of blue that doesn't exist in the natural world so it kind of just looks like a it looks like something that would be at like the holy land exhibit or something when you're walking through and they're trying to convince you like like if they're doing a stage play or something (laughs) so in that way it's like kind of cheap looking but i do actually think it's a good movie whereas like national treasure I wouldn't call that a guilty pleasure, but like I know it's not a great movie. Like I, I think Count of Monte Cristo is genuinely great. Maybe like some subpar filmmaking, but mm-hmm. like it's it's a great redemption story, um, like sure. revenge story, um, and it's also just so much fun. It's like it's my favorite swashbuckling film. It's just so much fun watching this guy go from having like a pretty normal life to then just having the worst life ever and then watching him just work his way up and suddenly be like the coolest guy in town and screwing over all the people that screwed him over. It's so much fun to watch. And it's very satisfying and cathartic. Well, you're not a stranger to the swashbuckling tales. There's there's also... The Princess, Princess Bride. Bride's on here. I'm so excited. I was looking at this list and I was like, man, I love all these movies. Yeah, The Princess Bride, dude. Princess Bride is another one that I think is close to perfect. It's just, I, I don't think I realized it until I was older, but just because it was going over my head, but I was like, oh, I didn't realize that this movie, how like self-aware it is, that like it looks cheap and stuff. And mm-hmm. like, it's, I just, there's one point where, they're like trying to decide how they're going to storm the the castle. And Wesley's like, 
man, if only we had a wheelbarrow and a Holocaust cloak right now. And then Andre the Giant pulls a Holocaust cloak out from behind him. He's like, like this one? And they're like, where did you get that? It's like <laughs> so funny, but I never picked up on it as a kid. It's hilarious. Um, but yeah, that's a great swashbuckling tale. Um, that's I, a good one for to just sit down with anybody. It it really it has literally everything. It has the the dramatic moments you want with Anigo Montoya and getting his redemption. It has hilarious moments in it. It has romance. It has fun action. That that sword fight on top of the cliff is one of the best sword fights ever. Yeah. Even if it is heavily choreographed, it, this is one of the movies where a heavily choreographed fight works in its favor just because it's awesome. Um. Yeah, dude, Princess Pride's amazing. I love that movie. Uh, well, I think we've covered pretty much everything except for uh, there are, are two films that I don't think we've spent too much time talking about. Yeah. And that's La La Land and 12 Angry Men. Oh, I thought you were going to say Prisoners. We haven't talked about Prisoners at all. Oh, we haven't talked about Prisoners at all. That's three then. Yeah. You just saw Prisoners for the first time recently, right? Yeah. Without, you, you, without me also. You told me you were like... You texted me and I, I was worried that I, I had done something wrong afterwards. It's like, oh, was I supposed to wait? Yeah, you were because we talked about it, but that's all right. Okay. Well, just because we talk about something doesn't mean that I'm going to wait for you. Okay. What did you think about Prisoners? Uh, well, we did talk about it. <laughs> I don't uh, remember. I have bad memory. The was it? I'm pretty sure it was Prisoners where I watched it because you texted me and I hadn't finished it yet. And I said, uh, and then I ended up calling you after. Is that when you asked if, asked me if I wanted to go on a walk? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and I couldn't go. I was had homework. Well, I mostly just wanted to talk about Prisoners. Yeah. Because for me. I like I loved everything until the very end. That's how I am. I, I can't give it five stars because I, I can't do it with my conscience because I know that I don't love the... I love the very, very end, but I don't love how the story wraps up in terms of the actual mystery. Yeah, I'm okay with the very, very end. It, even that still feels a little... A little uh, I, it, it makes sense with the theme, so I get it. The But it, the... The ending itself just felt a little tacked on, a little too nicely. Very yeah. Hollywood. It, yeah, I, that's exactly how I would explain it. It feels like the whole film was a very elevated thriller where it's like this guy, his daughter went missing and the detective is trying to help, which, by the way, one of Jake Gyllenhaal's best performances. Yeah, um, very good. So good. Obviously, Hugh Jackman may be his best performance. Um, and then... For fans who love uh, Paul Dano getting beat up. Yeah, dude gets... I don't know if the term beat to a pulp has ever been more appropriate. Like, mm. literally a pulp. Um, yeah. I, cinematography by Roger Deakins. Incredible. There's one shot um, where he is... It's just a slow push on a pine tree. Um, and I love it. It's so good. Um Roger Deakins has a way of capturing cinematic realism where it's like none of the lights here are, like I mentioned with Count of Monte Cristo, a lot of movies will have moonlight and it's just like super bright and blue. It's like not what you would see at all. Um, but Roger Deakins has a way of, he does it especially in Sicario 
where um, if it's he's filming at night, it genuinely looks like nighttime, um, which I think is so rare. And there's just something about the way, especially with like a crime thriller like Prisoners, everything feels so real, but it's also beautiful just because it's cinematic. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then this, the whole... I, I do think the mystery is super compelling until the very end where it, it kind of wraps up like a your average like Criminal Minds episode would wrap up where yeah. it, it kind of has to end a certain way, um, which I did not. That's that's my only complaint with the movie, though, is how that storyline wraps up. But I think it's great. And then, um, yeah, La La Land. So La La Land is a great film. And I think it has one of... I, I recently contemplated making a letterbox list about my favorite um, relationships on film, uh, and La La Land would definitely be one of them. It's just... I don't know if it's like not cool to call La La Land one of your favorites because it's so new. It's only come out in the last five years, but that that movie makes me feel a very certain way as well. And by the end of the movie, I think it captures something that not a lot of movies capture um, in terms of how the relationship unfolds and then wraps up. Um, well, I feel like I have to ask, um, when it was up for Best Picture, did you think that La La Land deserved it? I hadn't seen La La Land at that point. I think I saw La La Land a few years later. Okay. Well, I guess that doesn't matter. I either. guess it doesn't matter then. Do I think it should have won over Moonlight? Yes. Well, that's just, I mean, that's just because I like La Land more than I like Moonlight. Um, I don't think Moonlight was a bad choice, though. Those were probably the two most worthy movies that year of winning. Um, Hidden Figures was nominated that year. Maybe the worst movie I've ever seen that was nominated for Best Picture. I'll say it. Um, I recently watched Hidden Figures and I was like, this was nominated for Best Picture. Very shocking to me. I uh, love La La Land. I love the colors. I love the cinematography. I love it. I love that film. I'm just not not as into that one. Not as into musicals. But I, I'm not into musicals either. There's something about it though. I, I, I'm I bad do at, love Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, so I, I, I yeah. understand the appeal there. Something about that final glance that they share at the end. It's unbelievable how much is able to be communicated just with their eyes. And then there's there's just one left, which is 12 Angry Men, which I keep saying this. I, I've i always said there's not many movies that I consider perfect, but 12 Angry Men is another one that I consider perfect. Um, I think it's super... It's not dated at all, even though it came out in the 50s. I'd say the only thing about it that's dated is like one of the one or two of the characters... <clears throat> talks about like, ah, we got to go to the ball game. Like the ball game's coming up. It's just like very 50s talk. Um, but other than that, it, literally everything about it, from the acting to the storytelling to the actual content of the story to the camera moves, everything just feels so top-notch for yeah. regardless of what time it was made. Um, I, I think with a movie like that, the the story that they're able to capture and tell is such an examination of society in general. Yeah, uh, but it, all in one room. It transcends. Uh, well, so yeah, it's like everything has to take place in this one room. Yeah, and they're trying to tell the story of 
It's like, well, how do we deal with criminals in society? How do we deal with people who, you know, have gone out and, and done wrong things against other people? And a lot of that is first questioning, like, how do we know that these are the people who did it? Uh, and then determining evidence and finding the rules like that. The, there's whole court systems de- dedicated to to this line of work in society. And a movie like 12 Angry Men that's able to tell a story uh, and like hone in on just one particular case and still cover just so many different things about human uh, interaction and human relationships. Um, yeah, it's a, the, I think I've already used the word transcendent. That's a, a, a transcendent film. Yeah. I think it, it uses the one room. It, it, it can be a gimmick, especially now, like, oh, this movie takes place all in one room or one location. Literally the entire movie, except for, the the opening scene in the courtroom, then they go into the smaller room where the entire movie takes place, and there's one scene in the bathroom, um, and then the final scene outside. But 95, 98% of the movie is inside this rectangular room with a table in the middle, and there's 12 dudes sitting around it. And by the end of the movie, all 12 of the people feel like individual people with very specific personalities but it's not with a movie like this there's a real danger of being like oh we have we have 12 people we need to make them all distinct let's make this guy the the guy who always has like a the thing in his hand that the weird object that he's always like holding and everyone's like what are you doing and he's like flipping a coin or whatever and then this guy's the guy in the wheelchair and then this guy's the i don't know scientist who's always like coming up with wild theories Everyone feels like a very real person, but yet they're still distinct. And you can see, because the movie is, all of these men are on the jury for a murder trial for a young, I, he, I think he's a minor. He's I think he's 16 years old, and they're trying to determine whether <clears throat> he um, should be uh, tried as guilty for the murder of his father. If he is tried guilty, then he goes to the electric chair. And if he's not, then if, if they determine that he's not guilty, then he doesn't go to the electric chair. They go into this room. 11 of the guys are like, yeah, let's get over. Like, it's obvious he he killed his dad. So let's, I vote yes. And then one guy, one guy is like, well, I'm not saying he is innocent, but I'm just saying, we're dealing with a kid's life. Let's look at it a little closer. Like, like I just want to see if we can maybe come up with some new evidence or something. And everyone's like, no, like it's, it's very clear. He killed his dad. We're ready to get out of here. One guy's like, yeah, I, I we got a baseball game at eight o'clock. I got to get to or whatever. And then slowly throughout the movie, this one guy is changing the minds of, or presenting evidence and trying to change the minds of everybody else, <clears throat> or at least trying to get them to consider a different option. Um, and the way that unfolds throughout the entire movie, and if you look at how all the characters are at the beginning of the movie to how they end, mm-hmm. everybody has a character arc, and the entire situation changes, and he makes everybody think a different way. And it makes you think a lot. Yeah, it's a movie 
all about questions. Yeah. One of the best, I think. Uh, well, Sam, do uh, you have any other thoughts on your top 20 list that you want to share? I don't. I'm sorry if anybody's listening and they're disappointed in my list. That oh. I didn't have enough artsy um, French films on there. Stop over. I promise. And, and Sandy is, is not an English language <laughs> film. I promise it was on the list, but I took it off because I've only seen it once. I am a film student. I promise. Um, I'm Sam, sorry I put National Treasure on. You're there. only 19 years old. You've got so many more years to live as a poser. Yeah, you're right. Uh, well, I, I'm grateful for your list. Uh, uh, the fact that I've seen 80% of your list, um, I feel like that's a, a sign that that you and I are going to get along as far as movie watching and movie talking. Uh, but before we sign off, I do want to mention uh, the next couple episodes uh, we're hoping to to get out in the, in the near future. Uh, want to go ahead and, and put those in your ear holes. Uh, we're going to have an episode covering the history of the film club. Uh, and then we'll also have another top 20 breakdown of the final organizing member of the film club, and that's Mary Heath. Um, hopefully Mary can make it and, and sit for both of those episodes since she's been here since the beginning of the, the film club. Uh, she can make the, the history of the film club a, a rich auditory experience for you. Yeah, because uh, contrary to what you may think, as the co-host of uh, the Jackson Film Club, the podcast, uh, I know nothing about the founding of the Jackson Film Club because I was not there for it. Yeah, yeah. So Sam uh, was just so confident in joining the film club and saying, I want to start a podcast. And I was like, you're, you're my guy. Um, so we did it. And Mary is the, the type of person who, when she heard me talking about a, a podcast a long time ago, she said, I am not your guy. So uh, I, I knew that I was looking for that person. And I, I appreciate Mary. She she did agree to sit for these episodes. So we'll, we'll get those uh, recorded and, and send them out to you as soon as we can. Thanks for watching. Or thank, Thanks watching. for watching. People don't watch this <laughs> audio, audio medium. Uh, just give us up. a sign off. Thanks everybody for listening. This has been another episode of Jackson Falcon, the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Thank you. We love you. We'll see you later. <laughs>